Great to be with you today. My name is Darren, and I serve as one of the pastors here. I want to invite you to turn in your worship guide to the scripture text, which will be the basis for the sermon uh, that we'll be preaching this morning. That's on page 12. If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, as I read these words. As I do read them, I invite you to listen with open ears, because this is the book that we love. Hear now these words. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Holy God, we come to this time and we sit under these words, and I recognize that as we come this morning that we do come from all sorts of different places. Some of us are coming into this room and we are filled with blessing uh, and joy, and we are enjoying uh, a pleasant season in our lives. Others of us come in here and we are in crisis. Uh, Some of us are here and we are weighed down with so many burdens Uh, physical, familial, financial, uh, even spiritual. And Lord, I recognize that some of us come in here and we approach our lives and we approach this morning, we approach the scriptures uh, as people of faith, but others of us are here and we're not quite sure if we have faith. We're not sure if you're real. We're not sure if these words are to be believed. We're not sure how to process the things that you say and the experiences that we have. So, holy God, I pray that whatever place we find ourselves in today, whether we come here uh, in joy or in sadness, whether we come here feeling carefree or weighed down with all kinds of anxieties, whether we come here in faith or in doubt, I pray that you would give us grace to see that in the way that matters most, that we do all ultimately come the same. We come with an overwhelming and an unrelenting need to know you, to hear from you, and to be changed by you. And sovereign Lord, I pray that you would accomplish this task of changing us by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the Son of God, and by these words that were just read. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. It's great to be with you today. Uh, We are in our sermon series uh, in the book of Revelation that we are calling the end of the world as we know it, right? And my goal is that as you approach the end of the world as we know it, that you would feel fine. So if you don't feel fine this morning, you are in the right place because that is what we're after. If you feel fine, please feel free to surf Instagram uh, or whatever your media of choice is and tune out because you have no need for what I'm going to say. Uh, but if you are finding yourselves here at the end of the world and you don't feel fine, my, my mission is that you would have joy even in the midst uh, of a very difficult time. Right now, I say that because... Uh, I want to make a couple things clear. Is it the end of the world right now? Does anyone know? Yes, thank you. I hear that, yes. Um, well, so the answer is, uh, of course, from the Scriptures, that no one knows, no one knows the time, no one knows the day or the hour, right, of God's secret plan to ultimately transform the world uh, into the, uh, the, the age to come. Right? So we actually don't know if it's the end of the world, but what we do know is that it feels that way in many regards. 
right? Some, some of you are here, and, and it feels that way. And I want to just point out a couple of reasons why it probably does feel that way. One reason, of course, is because our world, our culture, our lives have gone through an amount of change that for most, if not all of you, is unprecedented in your lives, right? So when I hear my mother-in-law talk about living through the Great Depression, for example, that the change that is described in that period uh, sounds much more significant than what I've experienced over the last 24 months. However, so, so barring that, however, in my life, in my 42 years on this planet, the change that I've seen take place over the last two, five years, let's say, uh, is very significant. It feels more accelerated than at any other time in my life. And part of why it's significant, particularly for the Christian, is because in our Western American culture, what's happening is that there is a great uh, dynamic change taking place with regards to who holds social power, right? If you're feeling like this is the end of the world, part of the reason you're feeling that way, if you're a Christian, right, is because Christians in the 20th century uh, in America held a great degree of social influence and social power, and what's happening is, is that that's really changing right now, right? It, it began, of course, with a sexual revolution in uh, the 60s, and it has accelerated over the last 10 years uh, with such a pace that really has many of us has our heads spinning, right? So, for example, Christians uh, would influence, morally speaking, the media, the content, the decisions, the uh, government policies that would take place, you know, prior to the sexual revolution to a great degree. And now what we're finding is that it's actually the opposite, right? So now, if you are a Christian, if you confess Jesus Christ, if you subscribe to the Holy Scriptures as they were delivered once to the saints, in many ways now, in this world, it feels like a liability more than it feels like an asset in terms of your uh, reception in the world, in terms of your employment in some cases, uh, in terms of your friendships, in terms of your neighborhood. There are ways in which, if you identify as a Christian, you are labeled, for example, as a bigot. You are labeled uh, as someone who's intolerant. You're labeled as an outcast. Right? That's, you know, that broadly speaking, and I know that this varies very much you know, place to place, circumstance, uh, etc. but in many respects, what you're experiencing, if you're a Christian, is a great exchange of social power. Uh, and so it, it feels, uh, it, you know, some of you listen to this sermon series and you say, yeah, it feels like the end of the world. And my goal for you this morning is to prepare you for the end of the world in such a way that you can be faithful no matter what. That's my goal. Like my goal, uh, said another way, is that you can go through times of great difficulty, whether that's because of social dynamics or whether that's because of personal crisis, right? And that you can have the joy and the peace of the Lord and that you can be successful in the mission that God is calling us to. Uh, that is my mission this morning in particular because that is the basis on which we have this scripture that is before us. That is the mission of our Lord Jesus Christ as he writes to this church. And as we'll see confirmed at the end, uh, this letter to the church at Smyrna was not hypothetical. But actually the words of Jesus Christ to this church were actually addressing a very existential crisis that they were facing and that they would have to walk through. And so he is guiding them, and I believe that he is guiding you here this morning in your own context, whatever it is that you're facing, whether that's something that you're facing immediately 
or perhaps in a season to come. So that's the goal that I have. How can you make it through times of great difficulty and still have the joy of the Lord and still be faithful to Him? So that's the mission before us. Now, uh, the goal... The, the, the goal of the, the way that that happens in this passage and a predominant theme that's going to rise to the surface and what the concern of our Lord Jesus Christ is, he says, when you face difficulties, when you face trials, when you face particularly trials that come upon you by the larger culture, right, when you are finding yourself on the short end of a power change dynamic, he said, the most important, significant thing in your life to lay hold of is your faith, right? The whole issue with testing is, according to uh, the, James in his, in his letter, he says the whole issue with testing is that it is a testing particularly of your faith. That's what's going on. When you go through trials, when you have a power dynamic change, when you are slandered, for example, when you are treated unfairly, when you lose your job or when you miss out on a promotion or when uh, neighbors hate you or think ill of you for wrong reasons, what is going on in that moment, in that time, says Holy Scripture, is that God is seeking to test and deepen and refine your faith in Him. That's what He's up to. And that is really my main interest. And I want to make that clear. I have no, I have no agenda this morning to reverse what is happening, for example, right? I have no agenda to say, hey, let's, let's take the power back, even though I love that song, okay? <laughs> I have no agenda for that this morning, right? My agenda is to see your faith deepened, and as your faith is deepened, one of the ways you know it's deepened is that you can face difficulty and have a kind of peace that your neighbors can't explain. So that's what we're up to this morning. So how do we do that? Well, what I want to do is I want to look at the nature of trials, I want to look at the call in trials, and then I want to look at the result of trials. So, real briefly this morning, my, my son, uh, you know, who asked me to preach this sermon series, he has exhorted me to be brief, so I'm going to attempt to do that for him this morning. You're welcome. All right, number one, the nature of the trials. What kind of trials uh, is Jesus identifying for this church, and what kind of trials might you be facing? Well, the first uh, thing that he points out in verse 9 the nature of the trials that this church would be facing or was facing, first of all, was financial, right? So, for example, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, right? This church was facing, uh, to a certain extent, financial hardship. And one commentator explains that very likely this financial hardship was a result of the power dynamics going on in their context. So, uh, he says, for example... Such collusion could lead to various economic measures taken by the Roman authorities against Christians, sometimes in the form of bans against practice of trades, for example, expulsion from the trade guilds, and then even including imprisonment, uh, as referenced in the book of Hebrews. Right? So what was going on is that the church was not enjoying great favor in this time, but was actually experiencing persecution. The church would eventually experience favor uh, with, the, with the man Constantine, right, in the 300s, when he would come to power, the, the dynamic would shift again, right? And the dynamic often shifts throughout history, and this is probably not the last dynamic that the world will see if the Lord tarries, right? We will see them continuing to shift. But at this particular time, the church was facing uh, particularly intense persecution 
And one form of it was financial, right? So some people were being imprisoned. That was a more extreme version, but a less extreme version was they were being excluded from the ability to trade, right? That was what's going on. And so they were experiencing poverty. That's the first thing, right? The second thing that they were experiencing, right, which is a particularly interesting one, was the loss of reputation, right? So we see that also in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, and the slander, right? The slander. So in other words, what's going on is they're experiencing, they are now banned from trading, right? So they're experiencing a particular kind of poverty. But then secondly, there were groups of people that were saying things about them that was simply untrue. And that's actually important for you to realize, right? Like if, you, if we go through this time where this power dynamic changes, it's not simply that you know, being a Christian will be unpopular for reasons that are valid, but you will begin to be accused of things that are actually not true, right? So, for example, some people, you know, have said to me, if you're a Christian, that means that you hate people that live this certain lifestyle, right? But yet, to be a Christian, God says, you were to, you were to love the people in this world. You were to serve them. You were to treasure them. You were to lay down your life for them, Right? So to be told that you hate a group of people is completely out of accords with Christian teaching, and yet that is a predominant narrative, right? And that is something that we are facing as Christians, that we are being uh, challenged not just for the things that we do believe, but actually for things that we don't believe, right? And that's called slander, and that's what this church was facing. And, and I sense that it's likely that that's what we will face in increasingly, increasing measure as time goes on. Additionally, uh, we mentioned that they were losing their freedom. So they were being thrown into prison. That's in verse 10. He says the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. So they were losing their financial resources. They were losing their reputation. And they were losing their freedom. And then in verse 10, uh, at the end, it suggests even that some of them were losing their own lives. Right? And that's uh, highlighted by this statement, be faithful even unto death. Right, which implies for some of these folks that they were losing even their own lives. So this is the nature of the trials that they were facing. This is what this church was going through. And Jesus has some words of admonition, words of exhortation for them that I want us to hear as well. All right, what, it, what would his words to you be in the midst of whatever you're facing? And I want to recognize that for you and I, we're not facing yet things to the, this extent, right? I've not had to go visit someone in prison for being a Christian yet. I hope I never have to, but it's possible, right? But I have had to minister to some of you who have been slandered, right? Some of you who have had false things said about you. I've had to, to minister in some cases. And that is, uh, that's what's going on here. And if you've never, if you've never experienced that, um, it is a particularly uh, difficult kind of thing to walk through. Right? That's a particularly difficult kind of thing to walk through, and Jesus has words uh, of advice, words of exhortation for us this morning in the midst of that. So what does he have to say? What is the word of Christ to us in the midst of this kind of trial? Well, the very first uh, exhortation he gives this church, and the very first exhortation that he gives to you and I is found in verse 10 when he says, if you are facing these kinds of things, if you are finding yourself in this kind of position, the very first thing you need to get a hold of is to reject the impulse to be afraid, right? 
Listen, listen to the word of Christ in verse 10. As he acknowledges what this church is going through, he says, Dear, dear beloved, do not fear. And friends, I want to tell you that in the midst of any kind of difficult season that you find yourselves in, that finding the resources to obey this exhortation is one of the most missionally powerful things you can ever do, right? Is to not, is to have courage in the midst of trial, right? Whatever that trial is, whether it's personal or cultural or something more broad, in the midst of it, the most powerful thing that you can do, one of the most powerful witness, witnesses that you can participate in is to find the courage of Christ in the midst of that situation by not fearing. And friends, I want to tell you that, you know, one of the things that's really universal right now in our, in our season, and I, I see this from folks of all different backgrounds, all different opinions about all kinds of issues is, one of the things that, that unites everyone together, as far as I can tell, I don't see anyone exempt from this, is a state of fear, right? So no matter you know, what you believe or what your neighbors believe about the world, about Christian faith, about all the social, political uh, issues, health issues that are going on, everyone in every position, as far as I can tell, is experiencing a kind of state of fear. Right? Some people are afraid. Now, they're afraid of different things, you know, granted. Right? You, you, all all, all you all here this morning have different things that you're fearing, but you are united one to another, I would, I would argue, by experiencing a kind of fear. And so, beloved, what I want to say to you this morning, what the Word of Christ to you this morning is, Christ is at work in our lives, and the Scripture tells us that His goal, His mission, His power for you this morning is that you could leave this place less afraid than when you walked in. That's, that's one, of the, one of the ways you know that this Word has done anything in your lives, is that you can leave this place less afraid than when you walked in here this morning. If, if I simply accomplish that by itself, I will be happy, Right? Now, less afraid, but not just simply less afraid, as we'll see. There's a, there's a, what's the other side to being less afraid? You can be less afraid because you put your head in the sand, right? Or you can be less afraid because you have more courage, which is really what the, the Christ is up to here this morning, right? If people simply, uh, for example, drink their fear away right, or, or medicate it away, right, or distract themselves away, Right, that's not accomplishing this passage at all, is it? He says, do not fear, but then in addition to that, uh, at the end of verse 10, he says, allow your lack of fear to translate into greater faithfulness. Right, another word for that is courage. Christians are called to look at danger and not to ignore it, but to find resources that translate into courage. Right? Now, what's going on in here, and how do you get this kind of courage, and what is this all about? Well, there's an interesting phrase thrown in the middle of verse 10 that I think really unlocks what's going on in this trial uh, for me, and perhaps will be helpful to you as well. Right, so little, you know, when, when we read the Scriptures, particularly these shorter passages, you have to be careful not to read them too quickly because you will miss some of the most crucial and important details, right, that are, that are uh, you know, kind of accustomed 
from your, your situation and your circumstance and your background, and, and as Western Christians, most of us here, right, we are accustomed to reading passages like this and completely skipping over the most crucial part of the exhortation. Now, what is it here? Right? What, what is it absolutely crucial to understanding trial and understanding how to get through it? Well, it's this little uh, character that figures in here at the beginning of verse 12, 10. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And then he says this, do not fear because the devil is about to have his way with you. Do you see that in verse 10? Do not fear, do not be afraid that the devil himself, that Satan himself is about to have his way with you. He says he is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, what does this remind me of? Well, of course, it reminds me of two things, uh, one in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament, right? The, the New Testament one is the Apostle Peter, who is, is very arrogant, very confident, very ready to go, you know, conquer heaven and hell for Jesus right before his greatest failure. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, the devil has demanded to test you, to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you what does he say next? That your faith would not fail, right? And that brings to the surface what's going on in testing. If you want to understand what trials are all about, Christ's words to Peter is that they are all about your faith, right? Trials in your lives, whether they're personal, more broadly cultural, whether they uh, concern your family or your church or this world or your work. Trials are ultimately laser-focused and guided on attacking your faith, right? We see the same thing, by the way, in the Old Testament uh, with the man Job, right? God and Satan are having a conversation about Job, and, and Satan says, I want to test him to, to show you that his faith is really worth very little, right? This is a dynamic that goes on in Scripture repeatedly, and Jesus gives indication that it's happening for this church here in this context. And friends, I will tell you, I have every confidence that this has happened, does happen, and will happen in your lives, that you will be tested not simply by a hard time, but you will be experiencing the power of evil itself. And the goal of that testing is to either strengthen or destroy your faith in God. And I've seen both outcomes, by the way. I just want to be really clear. I have seen both outcomes. I've seen some of you walk through trial, and you come out, you know, very beaten but with a stronger faith, and you're able to mentor others as they walk through similar times. I've seen some of you face trial, and you come out, and you really don't have faith in God anymore. But Satan has been successful. Right? I've seen both outcomes. I want you to, to understand that both are a very real possibility and a very uh, uh, actually do happen even in our own midst. And friends, I want to tell you that if you, if you read Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, which talks about dealing with spiritual warfare, and he said, you know, put on the belt and the breastplate and the helmet and the shield and all these things that I really haven't understood very well for a long time. You know, I'll give you the Darren summary of what I do understand now. What, what Paul is saying there is that as you experience the power of, of evil, the power of Satan, you need 
the resources of Christ to be able to come out on the other side with a more precious faith than when you went in. You need to come out on the other side with more courage to face the next trial than you currently have. And that is available as you commune with Christ himself, as, you, as his very words, as his promises become not just something that you're aware of, but something that functions existentially kind of like a shield, kind of like a sword, kind of like a belt, kind of like a breastplate, right? That is what he is up to uh, largely. And so, friends, uh, as we look at facing trial in our lives, again, whether it's more broadly culturally or more personally, what I want to plead with you now, right, especially if you're not in trial right now, if you're not, that's great. If you feel fine, praise the Lord. Please take one little break from Instagram, <laughs> if you could, that I could just tell you, listen, pastorally speaking, assuming that you don't, you know, get run over by a bus today, right, you will eventually face trial. You will. And, and what you need, what Christ has for you, is the kind of resources in him, the kind of experience of his promises where you can look at the difficult things in your life and you can say, I trust in Christ to work and therefore I will be faithful even though it is costly, even though it might cost me my job, even though it might cost me a relationship, I will be faithful to him. I will put everything at his feet. I will trust him with everything because he is faithful and he will deliver me through this test. And Jesus says to Peter again, he says, I prayed for you, what? That your faith would not fail you. And friends, if you haven't developed a life of prayer, for example, this would be a great time to start, right? You know, this is so central to the way that we do war with evil is actually through prayer, right? As you face things in your life that are hard, the very way that you start today is you get on your knees when you go home and you say, God, I need your power. Would you intervene? And would you give me the grace to trust you for the result, for what comes, right? And as you do that, as you engage in that, the way that you know it's working is that you can be faithful, you can come out the other side with more faithfulness, with less fear, and with more joy. So what is the outcome? Well, the outcome uh, in verse 11, he says this. He says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Or in verse 10, he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, the crown of life is interesting uh, in the New Testament. Some of you might remember this. I, I don't know if, if any of you have had to do a lot of Bible memory my wife and I did a lot of Bible memory in our background, which was a really precious thing. And if you haven't done Bible memory, really recommend it, right? And I was reading this, and before I even got there in the commentary, I was just thinking, you know, I feel deja vu when I read this verse, right? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Does anyone else get deja vu reading that verse? I don't know if I'm allowed to say that or not. But does, any, does it remind you of another verse? Am I allowed to say that? No. Okay, sorry. Strike that from the record. That will be edited in post. Um, right? But yeah, as you read that verse, blessed is the one who is steadfast under trial, James says. For when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life 
that God has promised to all who love him. Right? The, the author James says the same thing. There's this, there's this crown that is offered at the end of trial. Right? And Jesus says the same thing. He says, be faithful and you will have the crown of life. Right? It's a theme that kind of comes up in multiple authors. So it's evid- evidentially something that's really significant in the tradition of the New Testament that as Christians were facing massive decisions, one of the, the realities that was at the center of that was let's go for the crown of life. And then he uses this other language that also comes up in the New Testament, this language of conquering. Right? Conquering kind of brings up this idea of, of gaining ground, right? Of, of taking a land that belongs to one entity, and now it belongs to another entity because you have won. And what Jesus says is, he says, we are involved in the business of conquering. And he says, but that happens through a kind of faithfulness, right? A kind of faithfulness that ultimately conquers at the time of the second death, which Pastor Sam will be expositing with great creativity in the future, right? As he shines in white, he will be expositing the second death in the future, right? So what's going on here? Well, what he's saying is he's saying, faith ultimately exercises itself when you see this world and when you see the circumstances and the decisions of this world as being of lower importance to the age that is to come. Right? When you look at your life and you look at even the possibility of losing your life, some of you will lose your life in, in difficult circumstances, whether that be to sickness or to a tragic accident. Right? We will all lose our lives eventually. And, and for the Christian, losing your life is not the most important thing, but the most important thing is the second death. Right? It is, is sustaining life through the second death. And of course, what this is going on here, if you haven't seen this already, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, dearly beloved, follow me in the way that I conducted myself. Follow me in being faithful even unto death. If that's required, it won't be required for many of you, right? We suspect. He says, but follow me in faithfulness even to this extent because you will conquer, you will gain ground as you experience a resurrection. As you are not hurt by the second death, what does that mean? It means that you will experience a kind of resurrection. And friends, I said at the beginning that for the church in Smyrna, this was not hypothetical, right? It's easy to read this and to be very detached from it because, you know, our circumstance is not at this severity. But for uh, the people of the first century, this was not a hypothetical treatment. This was not something that, you know, they treated academically, but those who read this had to treat it very existentially, right? Some of you are familiar with a, a church leader named Polycarp, who was actually the bishop of the church of Smyrna. Uh, and in the mid-second century, he gives us a glimpse of the kind of threats that may have challenged the faith in earlier years, He was told by the Roman governor that he would be executed if he did not give a public token acknowledgement to Caesar as Lord. He died for his faith. Some have suggested that Polycarp himself may have been one of the readers of this letter since he became Bishop of Smyrna in AD 115, and that he was particularly encouraged by its message before his death. And I'm quoting from Greg Beale in his commentary in the book of Revelation. You see, Polycarp 
for, for him, this was a very literal and a very existential challenge that he had to live. But he did live it as he put his eyes on Jesus Christ, as he put his emphasis on conquering the second death. And I believe uh, that when we meet him in heaven, that he will have a kind of crown that I long for you and I to have, right? That we will experience a reality in heaven that results from knowing Christ on earth in a way that actually changes us. And friends, that